0: Hello everyone, I'm Boyd Hilton. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to this very special BAFTA Zoom webinar event to discuss The Sister, the fantastic ITV drama event that's uh, spread across four nights next week, Monday to Thursday, nine o'clock. And we've got a wonderful panel of guests to discuss The Sister. We've got um, exec producer and MD of Euston Films, um, Kate Harwood. Welcome, Kate. Hi. We've got the creator, writer and exec producer, Neil Cross, live from New Zealand where it's 7.31 a.m. in the morning.
1: <laughs>
0: and we've got the cast. Nina Toussaint-White, who plays Ooh. Jackie. Hi, Hi, Nina. And Rita Acharya, who plays Holly. Hi, I'm Rita. Bertie Carvel, who plays Bob. And Russell Tovey, who plays Nathan. Turner Prize judge Russell Tovey. Yes, official. official Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you, boys. Thank you. Let's start though. Um, actually, let's start, Kate, with you. You, you. Your relationship with Neil goes back um, a long way. You worked together on Luther when you were at the BBC. Um, but what was it about this book of Neil's? This is this is uh, the original book is Burial that Neil wrote. I think around the same time that Luther started. What was it about this particular um, project that wanted you that inspired you to try and make it?
1: Well, I read I read Burial quite close to when we were making Luther but it was all heads down for Luther at the time um but it never it never left me um and uh we used to kind of talk about it now and again and Neil had sort of written I think a film version of it at one point and and I would say to him you know you should have you should come back and do this one for telly and he'd say oh I've written it twice already sure and to again and then suddenly when we were fin- when we were doing hard sun together uh, he he thought that now he had a, a, a you know he could see a way of actually making it work um, for television and we plunged into it quite soon after that actually um and uh, and I think he should talk about the approach that he took because it's very different to to how the book is narratively um, but it's it's never that the opening moment of Bob knocking on the door has ne- and saying they're digging up the woods has Never left me. I've remembered it sort of for for, for ten years. So I'm really thrilled that actually <laughs> the rest of you're going to have to share it as well.
0: Yes, because it, it's true. You've described this as as your most autobiographical um, story. Really, um, what was it about the story that it, that is autobiographical? Particularly, is it the main character? Is it Nathan that's, that's that feels a bit like you? Is it is it the particular incident that inspired it?
2: Um. Well, I, I think it's autobiographical primarily in as much as it's about guilt and shame which is you know being me which is how I spend my everyday life Uh, but it's uh, it was just really well it's inspired by a a bunch of various anxieties from when I was younger really Um, I did as has been mentioned unfortunately in the press I, I when I was very young I had a a disturbingly realistic dream which didn't feel like a dream and which haunted me for a long time, in which i randomly murdered someone. Um, which, bizarrely, since that got covered in the press, I've had a number of people reach out and tell me they'd had very similar dreams. So uh, <laughs> I, I feel uh, bizarrely vindicated and relieved. Uh, but also... Um, uh, 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 Excuse me if I'm at all inarticulate. It is very early here, and I'm not naturally a morning person. It's one of the disadvantages of living in New Zealand. Um, uh, It's it's that I read a statistic, you know, making a story, you put all kinds of uh, random bits of information and inspiration together. And and there's a a very quotidian statistic, which is that by far and away, most murders are committed by people who've been drinking or taking drugs. and that all of us, to the you know to the first approximation, every single one of us here right now, everybody listening, everybody around us, has woken up the day after drinking too much and thought, "Oh my God, what have I done?" Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is why drinking and I don't get on very well. Like Billy Connolly once said, "I I don't have a drinking problem; I've got a behavior problem." Um, and that that feeling of waking up. And that that physical sensation of almost like being in an elevator that's had its cable cut of your stomach sinking as you remember the stupid or cruel or insensitive or, you know, ridiculous thing you did the night before, which makes you writhe in shame and self hatred. And then extrapolating from that everyday experience to think, what must it be like to wake up in the morning and realize that you're a murderer. Having drunk. And taken too much the night before. So it was this kind of collision of these various ideas.
0: And the last time we spoke, you you made it clear you don't like the word adaptation, but you have created this new version of this story for television, of your own story. Have you what were the particular changes? I know, I, I know the the book was much more linear, wasn't it? And, and yes. the, the TV version spans three timelines. It feels much a more complex narrative.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm lobbying for the industry as a whole to adapt the word transformation because, you know, books and TV are, are, are very different. Is it mediums or media in that context? But books and and, and any story told with pictures is a, is a very different kind of kettle of fish, as it were. Um, and Kate mentioned that I'd had a bash at adapting it before and it, it didn't suit a feature film format. It didn't suit that kind of linear narrative, uh, a tradition and part of the reason being that in a novel on the page you're allowed privileged access to the workings of someone's mind you can see the world through their eyes in that kind of first person or close first person way so uh, a novel allowed us having met Nathan immediately to forgive him you know to because we're inside his head so he is there for us and I realized that you know that was a, a a much more difficult proposition on the screen because what Nathan does morally is, is a little difficult. Um, so, and, and and Nathan, both in, in a kind of narrative and emotional sense is the absolute kind of core of the story around which this, this kind of solar system of, of stories revolves. Um, and so I just thought it was important to, to well, I realized, I didn't think it was important, I had one of those kind of flashes of minor inspiration when I realized that um, we needed to meet Nathan in such a way that we got to know him on the screen and like him before we learned what he might or might not have done. Hmm. And, that, and that led to this kind of nested timeline structure.
0: Russell, Nathan, th- the whole show begins with, we see Nathan in this nice house, anything in a nice situation and then he gets a knock on the door and kind of changing his life in, in that moment but when you first read the script and this you got this guy this character who on one level was an everyman but on another level was facing a huge amount of trauma to do and guilt to deal with did you have an idea at that point how you would approach the role and was that how you ended up doing performing the role
3: um hi everyone uh i How did I approach the role? I approached it in a way that I wanted to be authentic to his emotions. So I wanted to put myself in that place, which Neil's describing where you're kind of in denial about something that has happened. And it does have a dream nightmare quality where you are like, did that actually happen? Did I do that? Was I capable of that? And am I still alive and still existing in the world post that? Because everything that an event happens and everything before that, it's that big it's kind of redundant your life up to that point is then just that's it that is gone this is where you're living now and i wanted to um really manifest something in him that was just compressing everything everything was small he wanted to disappear he didn't want to be Recognized for anything, he didn't want anyone to see him. He just wanted to simply exist and and be in love and facilitate someone else's happiness and offset whatever it was in him on this person. But he'd maintained such. I wanted to just really contain him and tight tighten him up. And basically, he's got Pandora in a box, and he's like put her in his stomach. That's where I sort of imagined. And Pandora's in this little box in his stomach, and every now and then she rubs around, but he's got her. And then suddenly at the start of it, it's like the door knocks, he opens the door and he, he throws up the box and Pandora's there like, hey, I'm fucking here. And you're like, no. And then it's like the whole thing is trying to get her back in the box and swallow her. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about, but that's, what I, that's like the manifestations in my head is that I try to, it's all these kind of weird things trying to, cause he's so conflicted the whole time and everything he's saying isn't what he means. And as an audience, you know who he is, but, You forgive him, and you're conflicted. But as the characters, like his his world, the world of Nathan, no one has any idea apart from Bob, and even Bob doesn't know who he is. And it's it's about him knowing who he is himself, even though he's completely lost.
0: I love the whole Pandora's box um, imagery. (laughs) Yeah, Um, Bertie, Bob. The contrast between the two characters is absolutely fascinating, isn't it? And, And almost. I feel like almost all the scenes of, of, with the two of them together kind of bouncing off each other. How did you see, Bob struck me, it was like almost as a character who's adopted his own persona anyway on one level. He's created this fascinating, you know, the long hair, the whole look, the whole way he talks, the whole, his supernatural expertise. Did you, Did you? how do you approach a character who seems to kind of almost be one removed anyway from reality, if that's if that's fair? <laughs>
4: I seem to um, get asked uh, the privilege of playing people who are slightly um, larger than life and I find it quite a lot of fun but then the challenge is to um, sort of join someone who is too much to to, to make them credible and um, I think you, you walk down the street and you find a lot most people really, um, you couldn't make them up, uh, most of us. In a way, what Neil was saying about everyone has a murder in them. I think that if you really scratch the surface on any of us, you find a completely incredible stories that don't seem to marry up. And actually, that's what gives something the ring of truth. So I do hunt down these um, completely outrageous characters and then take pride in trying to make them credible. Um, But actually, um, I don't think that um, he's so extraordinary, really. I think someone like Bob, um, I think Bob needs to believe in, um, one desperately needs to believe in a world that contains ghosts and more things in heaven and earth because he's um, demeaned and diminished by the kind of tawdry existence that he lives when that isn't true. So he, like like those of us who are artists, you know, he, he live, chooses to live in his kind of imagination because he's got better superpowers there. Um, and Rita,
0: mm. I, uh, I wanted to turn to you, your, your your character is dealing with a lot. I mean, she's dealing with, she's kind of the, almost the, the key to it in a way she, because her husband is keeping something very key from her that she doesn't know. So really the whole story hinges on on you, doesn't it? But at the same time, um, you know, you want to have a, you're know, desperate to have a baby, you're getting over the, the, the loss of your sister. Is it, you, she's dealing with a lot. Is that, is that something when you read the script, you thought, oh yeah, this is something to, get to sink your teeth into.
5: Definitely. Um, I mean, I read the book, uh, which I was obsessed with, um, and um, the the uh, translation or whatever word you want to use into into the script was was really interesting. And then, obviously, once you then get an actor like Russell who has his own spin on it, because the way I'd imagine Nathan was totally different to how Russell created Nathan. Um, and oh, that oh, was.
3: Hang on. What did you imagine? <laughs>
5: really geeky dude like I thought he'd just be like this wet kind of I don't
3: know <laughs> <Flano>.
5: <laughs> pathetic being and actually um, yeah like I don't know it just it was just amazing to kind of just see and the same goes for Bertie's take on Bob because in my head Bob was just this like sleaze bag. Um, but actually like it's just this bizarre really really tortured soul that probably has mummy issues. I think (laughs) Um, that dressing gown is just amazing. Um, So yeah, I think for me, yes, it was amazing to be able to sink my teeth into that role. But what was more amazing was actually to go, I get the opportunity to not only get this role where you have, you know, as as a female character, somebody that's so three dimensional, that's also three different timelines, but you get to play around with a script and actors that just throw plot twist after plot twist you know whether it's on set or whether it's on on the script in black and white it just is never black and white and that was that was the real joy of i guess playing around with a creation that that had so many transformations within its adaptation transformation whatever you translation whatever you want to call it but it went through so many stages and even now when when I've I watched it back to my sister today. <laughs> she did some of her theories, by the way, they're hilarious. She thinks, <laughs> she thinks it's all Holly's fault, um, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. It might,
3: I mean, it might be, yeah. it might be Amrita. Yeah,
5: I know, you don't know, you don't know. It's an open ending, right?
3: Good, yeah, clever. <laughs>
5: so I think what's great is that you just get surprised time after time. Um, so yeah, in answer to your question, yes, it was really meaty and uh, there was so much meat to sink my teeth into that I'm not quite sure how much juice there was that I didn't get to explore. <laughs> <laughs> I do do your Pandora, but I don't know.
0: If <laughs> that. Uh, no, yeah, the similes are flowing freely. Um, and how was it? What was it like? Ooh, pr- again, pretty much all your scenes are with, with Russell. What was it like working with the notoriously difficult? Um
5: oh my God, he's such hard work. I just. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's
2: Russell Crowe,
3: Russell Crowe, that's the other one. Oh yeah, <laughs> the Russell Graham. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, I always get that.
5: It was an absolute dream. Um, I last time we spoke, Russ, Russell mentioned that he he felt like um, you, you were saying that you felt like you were really difficult on this job, whereas I just felt like you were a bit of a laugh and, <laughs> and I kind of just have a lot of memories and photos, I have photographic evidence of the Amount of biscuits and Kit Kats we got through, so
4: Shh. <laughs> <laughs> um,
5: no, it was great. Oh. I,
2: think, I think- so <laughs> that was that was method, wasn't it? That was that was Nathan putting that, on weight, that, the that was the Nathan weight.
3: eating their biscuits and Kit yeah. Kats, it wasn't Russell. Uh,
0: yeah, which which timeline of, of Nathan, the
3: all time, all timelines,
0: timelines. Yeah, 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 Nina, Nina, let's come to you. Um, you're playing again, a character with multiple elements because she's a, she's a detective, she's a cop, she's also a friend
4: right.
0: um, to, to one of the, to, and it's interesting, I think, to have her, because you've played detectives before, haven't you? You've played cops before, right. but this feels <laughs> like a very, she's a very normal human being, I felt like it's, you know, there's no, she's not a cliche detective in any way. She's a normal human being who happens to be investigating a, a case that's very important to her and her friend. Was that interesting for you?
6: Yeah, um, you know, when reading the script, I was immediately drawn to Jackie. Um, she's, she's definitely, I guess, a very strong and forceful character, but her role was, you know, it's a really fragile one within the show. Um, and I kind of like to think of her as a, a bit of a, a Jenga game or a, a, like a, a domino line. And, you know, just one move or, or slip of the tongue and everything could come crashing down. And we don't meet, um, we don't meet her until episode two and it's then when we quickly realize she's not only the detective inspector for you know the disappearance of Elise's investigation but she's also Holly's best friend so just grappling with you know both job and and love and, and relationship was just a great opportunity and a great part to play um yeah i loved it i loved it every moment yeah
0: did you read the book as well did you get
6: oh, i didn't read the book i'm so sorry is that bad
0: no <laughs> I'm glad I asked. We'll pick up yeah. the call now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, my other question is, this is a show that builds up, that ratchets up the tension. By the time it gets to the fourth episode, where you're, you're, there's, a whole, there's a whole kind of cross-cutting going on, it builds to a very intense level. In terms of like the visuals and the direction, all of those elements, are you aware of all that going on while you're doing your stuff in the middle of those kinds of episodes? You know, it, it, when you watch it, have you, I don't know if you've watched it back, but it yeah. kind of, you know, the editing and the the everything about it builds to an incredible climax. So I wonder whether you can feel all that happening when you're playing the role.
6: Actually, when reading the script, um, obviously we, it's, it's over three different timelines and my character's journey was all over the shop, as everyone else's is. Um, but it's been edited together so that I think Jackie's timeline actually runs consecutively. Mm. So that was a bit strange to rewatch i thought you know i'd appear in episode 2 from the later years and and so on so no i didn't really have a gauge on on what the finished product would look like
0: hmm.
6: yeah
0: okay we should this started now i remember this was originally due to go out quite a while ago before you know, around before lockdown happened and had a different title and all of that. Now it's arriving just before Halloween. It feels perfect, actually, the timing now. I
1: know. We were were supposed to go out, I think, early May, probably in one of the warmest and loveliest weeks of of the year. And it would have, you know, everybody was, you know, it was already in lockdown and communing with nature. I think they would have been out in the fields and out in the parks and not watched us. So, in fact, you know, yes, it went well. I mean, we had to do all our post-production through and the reason it didn't go out earlier we wouldn't have been ready because we had to do our post-production remotely most of it um and that was at the same time that a lot of the rest of the industry was doing it as well so everybody was learning off each other we were kind of it was it was it was quite hairy to start with and we were kind of going okay you know we're going to do some adr russell we know has got equipment at home because yeah, he does. i, I remember models.
3: i had a ladder i had a ladder with a duvet that yeah. i then put over my head and doing all the lines
1: oh, no. And We are having to get equipment into Bertie and, you know, and do other people on the phone. And it was, you know, it was, as we all know, everywhere, incredibly tense time for the whole country. But I think there was a real sense of determination uh, to get this to get this finished and delivered. And ITV were really generous to us and said, look, you know, if you can't make your original timeline, what can you do? And, you know, we just I mean, you end up watching it, I think, probably five times more than you would if you were all together in a room um and every week i'd make the kind of limp joke of i miss the bit when a person comes in and says you know what do you want for lunch um but there was a sense of pulling together and it you know and i think i don't think there's anything we'd have done differently i mean i just think it the processes went into a different order quite often i saw that
0: Ruth Barrett, who wrote the music wrote the music during lockdown as well, which was not yeah
1: something- yeah yeah she's We'd all gather on one of these and go you know try and do your interested listening face and go mm, yes no that sounds great <laughs> You know, but it, it was just great, very very intense. I, I had again, a great it, conversation
2: with Ruth about the music um and for reasons I was in Mexico at a time and Ruth and, exactly and I were having a, a, a quite an in-depth discussion about the music as I stood by a rural road in Mexico while a volcano erupted in the background and we got shaken down by some local cops. That was the single most glamorous thing that's ever happened to me.
0: That's great. I'm so glad I asked about the music, about Ruth's music, which is fantastic, by the way.
2: Um, And and the community with nature, I mean, talking about moving it to, you know, Halloween time, you know, the community with nature that Bertie and Russell got to do, was it two o'clock in the morning in the woods in the rain in November? Yes. We're much more
0: yeah. winter. I was going to ask about that because Kate, you seem to like putting people through <laughs> forests in, in winter Dublin Merlis, there's loads of people running yeah, around well we,
1: did, we kind of went, hang on a minute Nimi, my fellow exec, I kind of went back in the rain in the woods digging up things, you know, again but I think, Anil Neil always says that if he wrote an autobiography it'd be called Neil Cross Exterior Night and, and I've lived through a lot of Neil Cross Exterior Night um, you know, and there is a reason why it's said at night, but my God, did we do a lot this time, and it was in the woods, and it was in the rain. It's very wet autumn, everyone. Last year, if everybody remembers.
4: How Bertie, um, how were the woods do? and the rain for you? Woods were fun, but um, the I, I'm really pleased it's going out in at the time of year we made it, because often, um, particularly if you're doing something right, it feels as though um, the stage that you, are working on is, you know, it's, the, it's the whole thing and the whole, it, it, the woods, let me tell you, were an integral part of this experience. <laughs> and the idea of it going out in May, when, when Kay first said, oh, I think we might broadcast in May, I just thought, how can this possibly transmit? Um, and I think too many good TV shows are ruined by um, shitty broadcast slots which is um, happily, I suppose, as we move into a world where there are no broadcast slots that mean anything. That's a good thing, but um, yeah, I think you should have to sort of um, prove that the weather is foul outside before you watch this show.
1: Well, they've, yeah, I think we will be. I think we're fairly yeah. sure about that.
0: Russell, you ran around in the woods naked in being human. You're not naked in this one, but not only have you got... I, think- I did for a bit,
3: just to warm up,
0: though, just right. to get you <laughs> on.
1: Yeah.
0: I also wanted to ask you about the scene in the car, which I won't spoil, but there's a key scene incident, the, the key incident of the whole story. That is a tremendously like well-directed and well-put-together sequence. What was it like filming that? And you have to do a lot in that scene. Let's, let's leave it at that, shall we? Um,
3: I, I mean... Great. I mean, every, every, every point in this, I've, I felt like, you know, it's supported by the crew were incredible. The cast are incredible. The script is amazing. Um, everybody there, it's just, you just, whatever the scene was, you felt like, and it was hard stuff and it was, you know, it was cold, freezing cold and lots of screaming and, and running around and stuff, but you felt like everybody there believed in the project and wanted it to be the best it could be. So whatever the scene was, it, it felt, um, supported.
4: We actually shot that scene in, um, in the exteriors in the woods that, that that were so bleak and so grim in the middle of November, and then the interiors in a studio right at the end of the shoot.
3: Yeah, we had some interiors. There interior.
4: are several shots that cross in, you know, somebody's sort of action. Well, mine usually is moving outside the car and back in, and so, um, I mean, usually, I mean, that's just de rigueur, I think, making a TV show is that you're shooting things out of order, but it was quite odd because, as you say, the scene is so intense, particularly for Russell, um, but having to kind of hold that across to completely different <laughs> of shoot mm. and very different conditions uh, was a challenge, I think. And um, But like you say, you know, I think because we all felt very... Um, Um, passionate about telling the story. Um, I think also I wanna say that um, it's quite rare in television drama to work on four scripts that are completely, I mean, which is to say that Neil didn't continue to hone and polish, but I remember reading the scripts and being able to read all four episodes and it has this hurtling momentum. And I think that the quality of an actor's work and everybody in every department, when they know what they're making and can com- commit to choices and know that everyone else is more or less on the same page, mm-hmm. is of a completely different order um, to the usual way of making television, where, which is also fun, but um, you know, where we're flying by the seat of our pants and committing to choices that often um, you, you don't, you know, you're sticking a pin in a board. Yeah, there's a certain kind of fun to that but I think it was really thrilling actually to be able to work on something where it had a real um, integrity to it
3: I think so too, I think it's the fact that we were allowed to enjoy the pace of these scripts we were allowed to be silent and you think in the moment without being forced into thinking so instinctively you can play all these scenes for real and you can take your time and it's very rare when you do shows that you can it's always a bit of a, come on, come on, come on, pick up the cues, get the pace. But this felt like you could really sit into these yeah. roles with all the other actors and just instinctively play with each other. That
0: And that that's rare. Mm-hmm. I should I say to everyone watching, about if you have any questions, please send them using the Q&A function. Sorry, Kate,
1: yes. No, I just going to say, it's one of the joys of having such a small cast. You know, you've got these four, the four that you can see and the, the missing sister. Um, you know and you're always with them often in pairs and there's an intensity that builds up in these little kind of duologues and, and dualities and particularly as you go down the the three timelines you know and it, it's, it's and that was a, a blessing as well when we came to having to do ADR in, in post-production we went hunting down people all over the place with this little select incredibly talented you know powerful little group that we had to work with so it was you know it was it made it made for a very different dynamic, I think, because sometimes there's a bit of a conveyor belt of actors that come through when you're filming, and you know it's a real privilege to be with a small cast. Actually, it was lovely. It's one of the one of the joys.
0: And Rita what was the, the the three timeline thing. Well, how did you how, did you approach that in any particular <laughs> way? Just playing the character differently each time, or did you just um, go, you have the visual element to, to provide that?
5: I'm quite geeky at the beginning of the process before I've actually. Get on set. So I do all my all my scripts are completely scribbled all over, and I've got all sorts of ideas and all sorts of backstories and whatever. And then I just sort of throw all that away and and see see that throws at me. Um, in terms of approach for that, it really I think with Holly, the key thing was to understand, um, I suppose, where her mourning process was, um, and and where she, where she was at each stage. I think there's quite, a, I think grief and there's different stages of grief and, and, and um, how we deal with things that haven't, I suppose, had a conclusion, especially in a tragedy like it has for Holly, where she would be at any given time during the course of the script. <clears throat> I had to be really clear about, in my head at least, about where her energy and where her confidence levels and how much, how fresh it was, I suppose, what had happened was in her mind at any point in the script and also where she was in terms of the trajectory of her her whole sort of purpose about I just want a normal life and I just want everything to feel okay as it possibly can be. Alongside that juggling the idea of maybe, she, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe she's okay, maybe she'll come back, maybe she's not missing, maybe, or is she dead? Do you know what I mean? Like where where is she in terms of how, how much does she believe in where Elise is, how dead she is, is she dead? All that kind of stuff that's probably going through her head. And and that juxtapositioned with trying to move on with your life. I think it's a really weird no man's land that she's juggling. Um, and then trying to get her to that place of when she actually does find out and what that does to her and how um, how controlled she still is in that time. Because I think the idea of control is quite, quite strong in her. So yeah, my approach was, I suppose, in a nutshell, it's kind of just understanding the energy and the space that she's in at that time and trying to keep that really clear in my head was the mm-hmm. most important thing for me.
2: Well, I that, think one of the,
0: I'm sorry.
5: sorry I say that was just helped along with, with all the other actors because they obviously had their own way of doing the same thing. I mean, maybe not in the same way as me, but I think everyone had a really clear, it was really clear when we were in a different time space, I felt, <clears throat> sorry, Neil.
2: Oh, not at all. I I just, you just gave me an idea. I'm going to say something that is if I've already always thought it. But I think one of the, one of the criteria that, that links mourning and that sense of guilt and what the entire world's been through over the last eight or nine months is that you're, we often trundle along in a life we don't really notice. We don't notice the people around us. We don't notice the, the, the small pleasures and the small luxuries. And it doesn't take much change to make you just yearn more powerfully than you can bear for the way things were yesterday. The, the, it, that, and when we lose somebody or we do something or the world changes around us in a way that we can't control, that you're in a kind of, that sense of loss and mourning is as much for the person that you were yesterday as it is for anything else. You just want that back. And I find that really interesting to write about. And and um, that's something which Andrea and Russell both evoked astonishingly in this. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Nina, did you talk to Neil about the role? Did you talk and did you get, you know, did you, did you have questions and did you get much- Neil Cross? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah.
6: No, we didn't talk, did we Neil? We didn't
0: talk at all,
2: did we No, no I forgot about you No, know that, that's
6: about. <laughs> <laughs> no, we didn't talk about stuff. Um I talked to Neil director about um you know the role the uh as we just discussed with Amrita and the the idea of uh, jumping between the the three different timelines and um uh, Jackie's character she didn't I know lots of the other actors got wigs and graying of hair and and that kind of freaked me out that I didn't get those things. So um, I wanted to play around with like different tonal and, and physical changes um, as she kind of evolved over the years. And I wanted to ask Neil because I think she starts off kind of, you know, the first scene that you see her in, she's this kind of young detective trying to impress, not really knowing what to do. And then she evolves into this kind of forceful being. Um, and I've never had that opportunity before so just discussing that with Neil director and him allowing me to to play and and yeah play around with choices that I may not have already done in a different experience. It was a very free and easy set um, to be given the license to to experiment. Mm. Mm.
0: Um- Bertie, what about you? Did, you? did you have much dialogue with Neil about the role and about the character? Did you, have any, did you, did you get any kind of um, insight you have, from We you?
4: did have a conversation, um, because Neil lives, as you said, in New Zealand. Um, conversing is, is a, a, a Herculean task. <laughs> I feel like it was somehow the middle of the night for both of us, even though... That's it true. does
2: feel like that, yeah.
4: But somehow, metaphorically, it's true that it was the middle of the night and, um, and I just remember I was, I, there was, there was a bee in my bonnet about something and I was worrying away at it. And, um, the course of course, needless to say, um, the bee was freed from the bonnet by something rather wonderful that happened. But that's another story. The point was, I was worrying away at this bee in my bonnet and, um, and Neil said, I'm going to tell you a ghost story. he started to tell me this story in the middle of the story there was a sound like you know in Star Wars when um, Obi-Wan Kenobi is sort of straddling the huge phallic thing that goes up through the thing and and he pulls a lever and it goes (laughs) it was a sound like that came out of nowhere and the line went down And I like to think that it was the ghost of this project. And it was either an omen to say, Bertie, get out now while you still can. Or it was a great sign that we were all going to have a great time. And luckily it was the latter. (laughs) Um, I can't even remember what the question was. Um, Yeah, so we had that call and that was great. And basically, um, to be serious about it, um, I was kind of, you know, I'm not really into... um, Uh, sort of like random evil dudes. I don't really believe in evil. I believe in um, uh, what Neil said before about our generic capacity for evil and so on and so on. And I was really worrying away at a detail that was um, not clear to me from initial drafts of the scripts. And in this wonderful call, we, um, um, he said to me actually, which I loved, he said, Bertie, it's like you're narrating my subconscious. (laughs) Uh, brain subconscious that is, but how wonderful! Because um, now I'm now really excited, um, and um, yeah, please stop me before I kill again. Somebody no, that's that's talk.
0: That's that's fascinating. Yeah, um, I'm going to get get to the audience questions in a second. Yeah, I wanted to ask you quickly. The the, the whole the, the story does straddle this idea of the supernatural. Kind of, it's always there in the background, isn't it? And in some episodes, you kind of have crash, crashes and bangs in the house, and you've got Bertie's character who's clearly believes in it, and you've got, you know, was it was that an in, that's an interesting trick to pull off, isn't it? It's always there, but without ever necessarily coming to the fore and making anything explicit as to whether that is a part of the story or not.
2: Um, that is very specifically autobiographical in as much as I'm, I'm obsessed with the notion of, of ghosts, imaginary and otherwise. Um, on a, you know, I find it, I hesitate to use the word intellectual because I'm a bearer of very little brain, but I find it intellectually very interesting, but also kind of viscerally and emotionally uh, fascinating to the extent that since we're sharing my neuroses um, uh, in a way that was maybe winsome and interesting when I was 21 and is now just kind of at best eccentric at worst weird. I've got a crippling fear of the dark. I I cannot bear the darkness. And if I'm alone in the house, I have to have every light in the house on. Every single light must be on. If there's ceiling lamps and wall lamps, they must be on. If there's a cupboard that's got a light in it, I cannot go to sleep. I can't be alone in the house knowing that there's darkness in that cupboard. So I have to make sure the light's on. I'm, uh, I'm metaphorically, Haunted. I don't believe in ghosts, but I spend a lot of time with them.
1: Someone who doesn't believe in ghosts—you've seen rather, or you've been—you're more connected to ghosts than anyone else I know. Yeah. Yeah,
2: it's there. It's um. It's a, a a big part of my waking life. As soon as the sun comes goes down.
4: Wow. I really, really want there to be some kind of tie-in where you're forced to um, go to bed with in the dark with an infrared I, camera.
2: I, <laughs> I, I, do it. I would. I would literally lose my mind. I've. I've
4: tried.
1: I've tried. I remember I, a
4: show called Ghost Watch that was on. Yes. On yeah, BBC yeah. One in about ninety five. maybe I mean, there must have been earlier than that. Uh, I remember I was in Belgium for reasons that uh, story for another day, and um, watching this thing. I was staying up late, and uh, it was absolutely terrifying because it started out. It was like children in need. It was like the BBC's <laughs> crap Halloween, um, sort of. Twenty-four-seven, and nothing seemed to be happening, and it was absolutely brilliantly plotted. This is probably a story for a t- another time, so please cut me off, boy. But I just yep. remember it was an absolutely brilliant piece of theatre because it tricked you into thinking, <coughs> "Shit, telly," and mm. actually, it was beautifully crafted. And um, yeah, it stays with me to this day. Unfairly
2: forgotten watch Sarah Green and Michael Parkinson. You're right. It was like in yeah. me it was utterly terrifying.
0: Absolute classic, yeah, classic, uh, classic. Show ghost watch, Russell. I'm going to go. I'm definitely going to go to all these questions. But before I do, Russell, you do believe in ghosts? And quickly to mention the ghost dog, which I know, um, which I think it's already become an iconic story. But you did feel you saw a ghost dog once, didn't you?
3: Yes, I did. My yes, 100%. I saw a ghost dog. I have an affinity for dogs, and it felt like a privilege that this white dog allowed me to see it. But I was at my friend's house, and they have an old, had an old rectory in Essex and they did events, bar mitzvahs, weddings etc and this woman came over and she was a clairvoyant and she started stroking something in the air and his mum went, What are you doing? She went, oh, I'm stroking a white dog. you got a big white dog in. And they told me this story. And then about a week later, I was sitting watching TV over there and I looked down the hall and there was this white dog run up the stairs. And I remember thinking, where the hell's that white dog come from? And then it ran down the hall and disappeared. And I turned to everyone in the room and I went, I've just seen a ghost dog. And they just went, shut up. And I was like, I have. And they went, just no one shut up, you've been a knob. And I was like, oh my God. And it and I was, I'm a hundred million billion percent convinced I saw a ghost dog. And I feel, yeah, privileged. And you can all think I'm crazy.
2: But. Yeah, Russell. When we're offline, we've got to talk about Old Shuck, which is old a, Shuck. a old Chuck, Shuck. S H U C K, which is a, a, an English tradition of the ghost dog. I think you had an encounter with Old Shuck. Well,
3: I'm going to Google that. Amazing. Usually,
2: well, right. manifest black dogs, or maybe maybe you know,
3: uh, the white dog, yeah. Amazing. Old uh,
0: audience questions. Right, um, an anonymous person asked how about Bob's look. How did you create Bob's look? Um, uh, as soon as the first photos appeared, a lot of people thought he looked like Bob from Twin Peaks or Rasputin. Was he based on anything like that? Or, or did, how did you how did you establish that look?
2: I think mean, one of the glories of the story, sorry, Bertie, but one of the glories of, of the show is that Bertie invested Bob with this magnificent Norma Desmond-like tawdry glamour. It's a thing of joy and wonder.
4: Well, I wasn't alone. Um, um, had a lot of fun with uh, Sophie Slotover, the makeup and hair designer. Yeah, and genius. Dean Morgan, who's the costume designer, and Neil yeah. Cormack, the dis- director, and Kate, and uh, the mm. whole team. Um, uh, I had a really powerfully committed idea that he should have long hair, um, partly because I just sort of felt like he should. And um, he reminded me uh, connected to, to him to a certain point in my life when I had long hair that I really shouldn't have. And, um, and a bunch of dudes that I knew who had long hair. And, um, to be quite honest with you, I feel like, um, it's important to me for reasons that are deeply psychological and I, and I'm not worth unpicking to put on masks because, um, when, um, uh, this, this, this idea that you put on a mask to tell the truth and you don't have to. Um, there are brilliant actors who, who don't have to do that at all, but I, I sort of like doing that. And I felt like I needed that mask and that that's what it should look like. I don't know why, I don't know where it comes from. It's just part, like it's dressing up, it's dressing up. Yeah. And like you read the thing and think, what does he look like? I mean, better actors um, just say the lines from themselves and don't need to hide behind right. stuff. But, but I do. <laughs>
0: it works, it totally works. Louis asks, you mentioned the name of the show had changed, Kate. Why was that and what was it originally called?
1: Actually, Neil should answer this really. Um, sure. because, because it was a process, and so you can imagine with these things when you want to change a, a title, um, you know, millions go around. And when the sister was arrived at, there was a huge sigh relief. But Neil, you should talk through the, the, the change?
2: Yeah, the, the novel, I, I never found um, the right name for the novel. The novel was written using the name Second Skin, uh, which was a song by the most unfairly neglected band of the 1980s called The Chameleons. Um, and everybody on this call, please go away, listen to Strange Times by The Chameleons because it's the greatest British album of that decade. But there's a wonderful song on it called Second Skin, which is a, a very moving song about the, the singer's encounter with the ghost of his dead friend. Um, it's, it's a very beautiful, very moving song. So I, I, the novel was called Second Skin. The publishers hated that because it, it had some kind of um, fetish club vibe about it. Fair enough. Um, so, so we uh, settled on the name Burial, and I never liked it because Burial's a really kind of claggy, clay, muddy, wet, I, d- I just never quite liked the name. It, it evoked the wrong things for me because the, 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 the show, the story, I think, it, is much more about the people than an event in the mud, uh, even though that's very intrinsic to the story. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm not a person who lunches. I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a very kind of, uh, but I don't live in London and I don't, I don't do lunches, but we were at a lunch and we were talking about the title in London, and uh, and another song popped into my mind and I said, oh, let's call it Because of the Night, which is a great Patti Smith song. Well, cover of a Bruce Springsteen song, and I really liked Because of the Night. Uh, And it got, I don't know if this happens a lot, I'm ignorant, it got focus grouped and the focus group hated it. It meant nothing to anybody. And a lot of people apparently thought it was a Pat Benatar song. Um, So I was, I had this story that I'd been, that had been in my head, these characters that had been in my head for, you know, 15 years by that point. And it still didn't have a proper name. And there was kind of and sounding and, you know- we went,
1: by, we went by another one, which we pretty quickly got a kind of uh, cease and desist from when we did a search on- um,
2: Oh, it was terrible. It's like, it's, like naming, it's like naming your child or naming your dog. If you get it wrong, the whole personality of the child or the dog changes. Um, And, uh, and I did a really kind of desperate, in a panic, didn't want to give it a name I didn't like, kind of David Bowie cut-up technique where you just start looking at random words. So I was opening books at random, looking at, you know, and uh, and I just opened a newspaper online and, you know, the, literally the first word I saw when I went online was sister. And, you know, the heavens opened and choirs sang and I realised that was the, the name that we should have given it all along. So it's got to happen.
1: So it changed not- it was interesting because when we called it so we were well interposed before we changed the title to the sister and we did actually do another pass through the edit to just land it a little bit more because it's such a resonant it changed it subtly changed everything actually um and we, ch- we changed a few outs and a few you know kind of beats and music beats just to land it just to remind everyone that there are two sisters in this story. Um, So which is the sister? It depends which way you're looking, I think.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. Um, Someone else asked, were there particular challenges for production design, particularly in handling the different um, ages and times?
1: Uh, Well, yes. I mean, I think, uh, again, I mean, we've talked a little bit to this, but, you know, sort of being in the woods uh, at different times, how much the woods change, but also the kind of, Um, environment that um, Holly and Nathan find themselves living in had to feel right and a good Neil Cross script always has some nice big windows through which kind of slightly creepy scary things can happen so that was always on the list but um, I think it's a more close-up show than that you know I think the challenges of the time weren't so much about the sets I think they were about these four, these four people. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, in
2: terms, sorry, Kate, I not mean to, but it, in my naivety, the, the, the weight of this, in fact, fell on the cast because in my naivety and what in retrospect feels like inexperience, even though I've been doing this since God was a boy, um, I had imagined that we would film one timeline at once. That we'd start in timeline one, we'd wrap that, we'd move to timeline two, but the vagaries and the requirements of production meant that that was not the case. So the poor cast were, you know, in a given day, were moving from timeline to timeline, and and that, rather than you know the the logistical challenges of production design, that was the real challenge. It was, it was them who dealt with it.
0: Mm. Thank you. Mallory Fenton asks, um, how, this is a kind of this is a big question. How do you think making television will adapt to a global pandemic moving forward? <laughs> who wants to answer that? Kate, do you have any feelings on that?
1: Well, I mean, I feel I can get up in the morning if people are still filming, I, you know, I really, uh, it's so, so many livelihoods are at stake in so many worlds, of course, but in our world, um, the audience is there. And, uh, you know, I feel we have to find a way of getting stories to the audience. Um, I think, you know, we're surrounded in our business by people who are brilliantly imaginative and brilliant at logistics. Um, and I think the shows that have started filming, you know, are carrying on, and that's a huge relief. Um, I think, you know, that it's uh, there's a big onus on us to tell to tell stories and to keep telling stories. Um, and I think, you know, it's going to make things more expensive. I can't see how it, it won't. Um, but the other thing, the other thing I feel like was, somebody said this on the radio the other day. And I think it's really important to say is that you know, the, everybody thinks about um, employment in film and television as being, you know, everybody outside the business as, as the, you know, these good people and maybe Neil and I figure somewhere in their imagination. But the truth is, it's a fantastic entry level for many, many people, many skills, some non-skilled people, you know, people who are starting in lots of different careers, not just acting, directing, writing, but also, you know, cameramen or carpenters or, you know, costume designers or, me- I mean, it's such a huge enterprise. And I think that, you know, so I feel so, so driven, like theatre owners must be feeling at the moment as well, is that it's not just us that need to get back into production, it's all those people that come and work in our world, you know, and it's, it will make things more expensive, but I think that the will is there and then, you know, I'm not sure we won't be doing a show set in four different continents anytime soon, um, but you know, we'll find other ways to tell stories. You know, I think, as we said before, it's the, the characters that people really come for, not the.
2: But, and I think, you know, from from the other end of it, I think, you know, the, the big unanswered question, particularly at this very acute moment we're in right at this particular moment is, is this a moment or have things changed forever? Um, uh, so I, I, I keep thinking about that. You remember that final scene of Our Friends in the North where you hear Oasis and, and magically you're transferred to that particular moment in British history. Now, in, in five years time, are people gonna see the wearing of masks as, as the everyday experience of, of everyday life? Or is it going to date any production which shows masks to this particular time? And I think that uncertainty is is uh, is troubling.
0: Uh, and are you tempted to write about this whole period, Neil, or is it something you think it will date, and so you can't avoid it? In a way?
2: I'm I'm hoping. I think probably along with everybody else, I'm hoping desperately that it's going to date. I, I don't I don't think at the moment anybody wants to be told this story because we're all living in it. Um, uh, I don't on a really dull level I don't think it's great for actors to walk about wearing masks because you know it's like taking a carpenter's tools away um, and 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 what's going on is 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 chronic and and what's chronic by definition almost isn't dramatic so I just think that we've all got our fingers crossed and we're just hoping the moment's going to pass yeah. and then when once it's kind of Once it has passed into history, then people can begin to tell interesting stories about it.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks to BAFTA, thanks for Kate, Bertie, Russell, Neil, Nina, and Rita. And see you soon, bye. Thanks, everyone.